Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in, at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one, uh, with one Simon, a tanner. What might surprise us in the book of Acts is that it makes clear that the foundational work of Jesus um, did not finish with his life, death, and resurrection. He actually only completes the establishment of his kingdom through the finished work of his specially chosen ambassadors, his apostles. Now, at the start of the book, the apostles have too a narrow-minded view of what Jesus is going to achieve. Please just turn there with me a moment. It's on page 1093, Acts chapter six, uh, 1 and verse 6. They asked Jesus in chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus at least partially corrects them by answering their when question with a what answer. He tells them what their kingdom task is in verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the story of the book of Acts is exactly that how the risen Lord Jesus works through his chosen apostles to expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And the book ends with that task completed. The apostle Paul has made it to Rome, which is the representative capital of the ends of the earth. He's right in the belly of the beast. He's planted the flag of proclaiming the kingdom on the very plains of Mordor. Luke's two-volume account it ends in a very ingenious way. Uh, in chapter 28, verse 31. If you wouldn't mind, we're just going to go to the end as well. So chapter 28, verse 31. 
Uh, it's 1130, page 1130. It's an ingenious end to his work because it shows a completed narrative and at the same time an implicit call to action. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 30. He, that is Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word without hindrance there is in the emphatic position. Paul is the last link in the chain of the kingdom of God, expanding to the very ends of the earth. All the glass ceilings of kingdom expansion have been smashed. Jesus has fully and finally demonstrated that his kingdom has conquered the globe by the proclamation of the apostolic word. And by the end of Acts, we're to have supreme confidence that Jesus continues to work through his word about his kingdom today. The difference between the apostles' work and our work is this. Through their kingdom proclamation, they drew the circle of God's kingdom, as it were. They defined the territory. Theirs is a foundational, a finished work. Through them, Jesus established once and for all, his kingdom is global. It can be proclaimed to all people without hindrance. The job of all other Christians, including us, if we're Christians here today, is to play our part in proclaiming that kingdom, knowing we can do that without hindrance to anyone. We can fill that circle uh, to expand that circle, uh, which has already been drawn of God's kingdom. And Luke wants us to be absolutely certain that's the right thing to be doing with our lives. Because that is how the risen Lord Jesus in his heavenly throne room is at work building his kingdom today. Sometimes I think we're tempted to treat him like a non-exec director and just checking in on a Sunday for the board meeting. Or we think he's playing Xbox, uh, waiting for the heavenly, his heavenly father to give a thumbs up for him to return and to bring about the resurrection of the dead. Well, Acts tells us he's deeply involved in the day-to-day -day life of his people. He is active by his spirit as his people speak his apostolic word. Now, that's the destination in Acts. But our passage this evening is the introduction to a crucial stage in that development which we'll be covering for the rest of this term. Jesus reigns powerfully now, and we're going to concentrate on two essential introductory aspects of his kingdom. The resurrection life of Jesus and the authenticated expanse of his kingdom. So first, the resurrection life of Jesus' kingdom. Now, we might like being in the United Kingdom at the moment, where the sun never stops shining and rain seems to be a thing of the past. But entering Jesus' kingdom is a whole other ballgame. It's about entering life in all its fullness. And it's the answer to everyone's deepest and most inescapable problem. Last night I watched um, the first episode of the new Lord of the Rings series. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's a love-hate thing, isn't it? But the Lord of the Rings is the best-selling set of books of all time uh, since they were first published. It does have a compelling story. What do, you think, what do you think it is about that story uh, which has led them to capture the imagination of millions of people? 
Well, its author, J.R. Tolkien, uh, said this in an interview, which might be the key to their success. He said, if you really come down to any large story that interests people and that can hold their attention for considerable time, stories, human stories, are always about one thing, frankly, aren't they? Death, the inevitability of death. He then pulled out a quotation from the paper from a philosopher called Simone de Beauvoir, which he said put it in a nutshell. She wrote, there is no such thing as a natural death. Nothing that happens to man is ever natural, since his presence calls the whole world into question. All men must die, but for every man, his death is an accident, and even if he knows it and consents to it, an unjustifiable violation. He concluded by saying, we may agree with those words or not, but those are the keyspring of the Lord of the Rings. So whether we're more artistically minded uh, and want a story to explain everything, or more analytically minded and want the true philosophy, the theory of everything, if we ever do any serious thinking about things, it has to involve dealing with our own mortality. And the inevitability of death raises a challenge to all of us in the way we live. Do we, do you, have a philosophy of life that can cope with your death? Do you have an outlook on life that doesn't crumble when you face your certain mortality? And maybe more pertinent than that, how can you be sure? And are you really satisfied by it? Well, the Bible's conviction is that Jesus' kingdom is the only grounded, satisfying response uh, to that question. And we pick up the narrative as Peter, uh, the apostle, arrives to meet followers of Jesus in a town called Lydda, about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And we're back in chapter 9 for the rest of our time now. And you might want to turn back there. Chapter 9, and we're um, starting at verse 33. So Peter is on some sort of national tour, and we get in verse 33, and he ends up in a place called Lydda, and it says, verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, I imagine we'll all know somebody who suffers from a debilitating illness, and no matter how well they cope or they're cared for, it is still a sad and a painful thing. I think of a friend of mine um, who hasn't been able to walk for a long time. She's constantly in pain, which means she finds it very difficult to sleep. And obviously then that affects all of her life. In some ways, she's experiencing more quickly and more acutely than many of us, the forces of death. Well, this man has been paralyzed for eight years. He's not a crisis actor. He would have been known throughout the town. But Peter turns to him in verse 34. And notice, Um, who he claims does this. It says, verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. He rose. Um, This is a mini resurrection, if you will, a picture of Jesus' kingdom and of his resurrection power. Damage and death turned to restoration and life. Just imagine what it would have meant to Aeneas to his friends and family, to walk again. This is what Jesus' kingdom is all about, life. And we see that in a second miracle. Joppa is a seaport about 12 miles just further on from Lydda. 
And there we meet a woman called Tabitha. And we learn a bit more about her in verse 36. Luke tells us she was full of good works and charity. And we see there that part of that involved looking after widows, who in that society were often not in a position to look after themselves. She's shown to be an authentic disciple of Jesus. The people of God uh, were commanded to look after widows amongst them, as they were meant to reflect God, who cares deeply for those who can't look after themselves, typified by orphans and widows. If you were here with us when we looked at the beginning of Acts last year, you might remember it was the community of believers that sold their property to provide for those who are in need amongst them. And when things weren't going as they should, they called a meeting of every single believer in Jerusalem to make sure that widows are being properly looked after. The resurrection life of Jesus is not just about hope of a bodily resurrection after death in the future. Resurrection life begins now for the Christian. As even in this life, we're transformed to reflect more and more the likeness of our Lord. The more we know Jesus, the more we become like him. One way we're being transformed to reflect him is by reflecting his life-givingness, if I can put it like that, and how we care for one another. It may be a slower transformation than we like, and it certainly is for me. But if we know ourselves, we know that transformation is otherwise inexplicable and indisputably down to the work of Jesus in our lives. That is authentic Christian experience. Tabitha was an authentic Christian, giving life support to these believing widows. And it seems that they know Peter is in the area. They send for him, uh, presumably in the hope that he might do something about Tabitha's recent passing. And just try and imagine the scene as if you were there, as we read some of it again. We'll start in verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made whilst he was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Now, as Peter enters the room, the widows are weeping beside Tabitha's body in the clothes that she made them. He asks them to leave the room, and he kneels and he prays. And like he told Aeneas, he turns to Tabitha's lifeless body and says, Tabitha, arise. And I wonder what she was thinking when she opened her eyes. Um, was it absolute shock at a strange man at the end of her bed? Or maybe she was aware in some way that something incredible had just happened. And I love the details here. She opens her eyes, she sees Peter. He takes her by the hand and he presents her alive to the saints and the widows. In the same way as it says in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles after the resurrection. Here is another mini resurrection a picture of the kingdom life Jesus offers. This time, straight life from the dead. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of resurrection life. This is not the future day 
of the resurrection from the dead, where all people will be raised, and Jesus' people will be raised imperishable to be with him. You can't hop on a plane to Tel Aviv today and shake Tabitha by the hand. But the mini-resurrection pictures here um, that Jesus performs through Peter give us a taste of what kingdom life is all about and demonstrate that Jesus' kingdom is truly the kingdom of resurrection life. And the question for us is, um, don't we want that for ourselves and for those we care about? And frankly, for those that we don't know and don't care about that much either. This summer, I had the privilege of being at a funeral of a man called George. Now, we weren't best friends, but I had gotten to know George a little bit over the last three years. And I knew him well enough to know he was a man who had submitted to Jesus as his king and was trusting in him for life. His funeral was a sad occasion. We remembered um, our loss. But it's a very special thing that it was underpinned by resurrection life. As his nephew gave a tribute, a few words about George, not only did we find out some surprising things, um, he was a very private man, but it turns out that he'd um, corresponded with, exchanged letters with uh, the Queen and with four prime ministers. But also his life was peppered with acts of love and service uh, for the Lord Jesus, empowered by the Lord Jesus. He had experienced resurrection life. And more than that, it's a tremendous thing to know that he will one day be raised to the fullness of resurrection life. And those of us who were there, we reminded each other of Jesus' words to Martha, which we knew were true for George. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Without Jesus, there is nothing. There is no hope in the face of death, apart from made-up sentimentality, grounded in nothing. But Jesus' resurrection and these miracles are investigatable facts on the table of history. To dismiss them out of hand is intellectual cowardice at best and completely circular thinking at worst. If no amount of evidence will convince us that a miracle like this could happen, then we're acting in blind faith in the teeth of the evidence. And how would we expect God to demonstrate himself being especially at work if it weren't by things that only God could do? Luke, the author, tells us at the start of his gospel that he's writing it on the basis of careful investigation and eyewitness testimony. This account was written in the lifetime in many of those who were in these towns. And the careful depiction of the geography shows that he knows the area well. Later on in Acts, we learn he traveled through this area himself. And it's much more difficult to make this sort of stuff up in the first century before they had anything approaching the maps that we do, um, let alone Google Maps. In any case, the genre of historical fiction uh, wasn't invented until the 17th or the 18th century. The famous um, literature professor C.S. Lewis um, tried to explain some of this like this. He said that those who dismiss the gospel accounts as myths or fabrication had clearly not spent much time reading literature. It was clear to him, who was an expert in such things, that there are two options, really. That either Luke is writing what he called reportage, it's a reliable report of what happened, or else, he says, some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern 
novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be a narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now, don't take his word for it. Um, if you're unsure, um, why not read Luke's Gospel and Acts for yourself? Or if you hate reading, why not listen to it um, for yourself and see what you make of it? When you read it seriously for yourself and seriously think about what it's saying, the most compelling conclusion is that he's writing a reliable account. William, who's leading our meeting this evening, often reads through a gospel with individuals. And at one time, he was reading with a lawyer, uh, a QC, who works down the road from here. He's at the top of his field in property law. And he came to trust in Jesus. And at one point, William asked him um, what convinced him to trust Jesus. And he said this, I am compelled to. The evidence demands it. I am compelled to. The evidence demands it. Now, these mini-resurrections, they're pictures and tasters of resurrection life in Jesus' kingdom. They really happened, and they're recorded that way, um, that we might have confidence in resurrection life that Jesus offers. But there is more going on here. Um, you might know that Jesus himself helped a crippled man, a healed crippled man, and raised a widow's son from the dead in ways described very similarly uh, to what's happened here. And most obviously of all, he himself was raised to indestructible life. Luke has already given us grounds for confidence that Jesus overcomes death and offers life. So is he simply reinforcing that here, or is he doing something else? Well, here's a question to ask ourselves. What right do we have to Jesus' resurrection life? Why are we entitled to it? We're a room full of people from all over the world. What right do we have to have a green card to Jesus' kingdom? I think um, people in my generation find this very hard to accept because if your primary school was anything like mine, you're constantly told how brilliant you are and how, how talented you are. You can do anything in the world if you just put your mind to it. The only limitation is the self-limits you put on yourself. Or more generally, we're in a culture that's fixated on demanding our rights. We live in a constant state of entitlement. So if I want to enter Jesus' kingdom, of course I can. Um, he'd be lucky to have me. But genuinely, um, what right do I have? Do you have? At this point in Acts, Peter, um, the apostle, certainly doesn't think we have a right to be part of Jesus' kingdom or at least we don't have a right to enter his kingdom on the same level as God's historic people, maybe we can pick up the scraps. We might even know that we're sinners, that we've all naturally rejected God and done much evil. But we know Jesus forgives sins and offers life. So that's done. Uh, done and dusted, we can have eternal life. But how can we know for sure that he offers eternal life to us? What basis, what is the basis of our entitlement to his kingdom. Well, in this section of Acts, Luke begins to give us confidence that the risen Lord Jesus is the true king of Israel, according to what was promised in the scriptures. Because God's king, the true king of Israel, is also the true king who offers life to the whole world, which we'll see more of in the coming weeks. But our verses are just an introduction to that. 
and I think Peter's reluctance, which again we'll see more clearly um, later, adds a certain authenticity to the account. Even though this, expan this expansion spoken of, uh, is spoken of in the Old Testament, and even though Jesus spent 40 days teaching Peter about his kingdom after his resurrection, and he thought you know, maybe some of the stuff uh, would come up. As you probably know from our own experience, it is one thing to be taught something and another thing to see it in reality. Sometimes we don't really grasp what we are taught in principle until we see it fully worked out in practice. And that's what's beginning to happen here. Up until now at Acts, uh, the apostolic action has all been in Jerusalem. Then there was a persecution that spread believers out from Jerusalem to the rest of Israel. But we're told in chapter 8, verse 1, that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. But when the persecution died down for a time, we see just before our passage in chapter 9, verse 31, that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And it seems that Peter took the opportunity of the peace to visit all the places that the word of God has visited and been planted and where people were becoming believers. Just verse 32, it says, Peter went here and there among them all. But we focus here on the towns of Lydda and Joppa. So the question uh, remains, why these things happen here? Why now? And why does Luke include these events uh, and this visit, not the rest of uh, Peter's interrailing round Israel? Well, secondly, and much more briefly, we see this is the start of the authenticated expanse of Jesus' kingdom. Lydda and Joppa on the outskirts of Judea, and as we've seen, they're already believers here. And we've seen through Tabitha that they're real, full-blooded believers. And we've heard the church is multiplying already. So why is it important that we see Jesus perform these miracles through Peter here? Jesus' kingdom has already expanded and is expanding here. Well, I think Jesus is authentically um, authenticating that expansion uh, through his apostle Peter, which at the same time, he's expanding Peter's mind to understand what he's doing in his kingdom. These are the first apostolic miracles done outside Jerusalem. Not only had Jesus done these miracles, but Peter had raised a lame man um, in Jerusalem. Now he's doing the same in Lydda. And the raising of Tabitha in Joppa goes even beyond what the apostles are recorded as doing in Jerusalem. As we said, Lydda and Joppa are on the outskirts of Judea, a bit like a combination of Deal and Dover to us, maybe. And Joppa is a port city, which is more mixed culturally than Jerusalem, seen as less holy, more tainted spiritually. We get that demonstrated by the fact we get Tabitha's name translated for us. Both names are used, a bit like those of us who have a Chinese and an English name. It's a mixed culture. What Jesus is doing through his official witness, Peter, is authenticating the beginnings of this expanse of his kingdom beyond the previously understood holiness boundaries. He's officially planting the flag. And he's also preparing us for the bigger barriers of expanse to come. The persecution that led to um, the kingdom being proclaimed in Joppa and the believers multiplying there was not some nice secondary cause or happy side effect of the real action in Jerusalem. No, the definitive plan of Jesus is to expand to all Israel and to the nations. 
because his base of operations is now not in Jerusalem, but at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Luke highlights the fact for us that these Christians are just as legitimate as those in Jerusalem by what he calls them. I wonder if you noticed that. He calls them saints or holy ones twice in this section, a word he only uses to describe Christians four times compared to the 30 times he uses the word disciples. And these riffraff from Lydda and Joppa are just as special and set apart as God's people uh, as those in Jerusalem. And the apostolic visits, including these apostolic miracles, led to a surge of people turning to the Lord in both towns and throughout the region. The kingdom now explodes through the apostolic witness. This is Jesus fulfilling the agenda he set out, doing what he was said he would do, and further authenticates Peter as the agent who continues to officially increase the territory of his kingdom. And as we see Peter gently re-educated here and the kingdom expands authenticated, it gives us confidence that Jesus really is alive and active in the world from his heavenly throne, continuing to establish his worldwide kingdom. That is the plan, and it's a plan that we can be part of. The apostles planted the flags, and Jesus is powerfully at work through us as we gather his people into his kingdom through his word. Last night, I was speaking to my wife, Abby, about this passage, and we were bemoaning ourselves, really, that so often we don't really believe or don't really have confidence that Jesus is powerfully at work today as his gospel is proclaimed. So often we find ourselves wanting to speak about Jesus or to introduce people to him, but we don't have the confidence to, or we don't make time to get round to it, or we're disillusioned by so many seemingly fruitless attempts in the past. Why bother inviting someone to RML Mark to meet Jesus and his people? Why bother developing relationships with neighbours and colleagues to be able to invite them to an event to hear the Lord Jesus explained? We want to grow in confidence in the power of the proclamation of Jesus' word. But how are we going to do that? Well, I think the answer is to come back to God's word ourselves. The Lord wants to convince us. And this term, we're going to see Luke's mounting case for confidence in the fact that Jesus really is working powerfully through his word to all people. We might know that is true in principle, but I'm excited to see him drive it home in us in all angles and I know I need to hear it. Because there's nothing more important going on in the world today. Jesus reigns powerfully today, giving life through his word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus reigns at your right hand and works powerfully today. Thank you that he established his kingdom to the ends of the earth so that we can be confident we belong in it and to share in his resurrection life. And thank you that he's still populating it today through his word. We ask you to instill us great confidence in that as we come to your word, that we may use our lives usefully in your service. Amen.